Acts 21, verse 37. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said. Leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. 
What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid of Paul, afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Sometimes actions have unintended consequences. Can anybody relate to that? Actions having unintended consequences. I uh, well remember November 1978. I packed up my old brown Ford Cortina uh, with its white vinyl roof, crushed velvet hood lining and mag wheels and headed four hours west of Brisbane to serve the Presbyterian Church of Texas Inglewood on the Queensland-New South Wales border. And it was for three months as their student minister over summer. So off I headed. I lived in a small caravan at the back of the church in Texas, which is right on the border, part of the towns in New South Wales and part of it in Queensland. And uh, I would drive 55 kilometres from Texas to Inglewood and I'd do things like lead Bible study, youth club, preach, visit, etc. and teach RE, religious education, in the schools. 
One morning I just enjoyed a cup of tea in Inglewood and uh, it was morning tea time and it was time to head off and teach RE at school. So I thought, better go to the bathroom, went to the bathroom, you're not going to believe it, my zipper broke. (laughs) And I thought, oh, you know, I was intelligent enough to know you don't stand in front of a classroom full of kids with your fly at half-mast. So I thought, hmm, all right, what am I going to do? So I raced down to a shop in town that had some clothing, grabbed the first pair of trousers that remotely looked like they might fit me and quickly (laughs) bought them and discovered they were too long. So, you know, they were like, I'm in really too long. So then I had to pin them up. So I'd buy a, a packet of safety pins and kind of you know, be doing this and then be racing off for RE in the school. All the time I'm thinking, I'm trying to concentrate on the lesson standing in front of the kids, thinking, do they know what's just happened? Can they see the legs you know, at different lengths? Can they see the, the gold safety pin sticking through? And I hatched a plan. I thought at lunchtime, I know there's a lady in the church who operates a sewing business and she operates from home. I'll get her to hem the trousers. So oh, lunchtime couldn't come quick enough. So I raced off and sure enough, she was there and she said, yeah, we can fix that. And she said, there's only one problem. And I said, what's that? She said, I can't hem them while you're in them. (laughs) Oh, that hadn't occurred to me. (laughs) So she said, look, I know, just go into our bedroom, take off your trousers and pass them out the door to me. So, all right, okay. So I was in a lather of perspiration, not thinking real well. So I did this. Anyway... The thing I dreaded came to pass. Her husband came home at lunchtime. (laughs) He pulled up out the front. (laughs) I thought, oh, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. (laughs) He's not a Christian, not particularly enamoured with the church, and I hadn't met him before. Anyway, sure enough, he wants to come into the bedroom. So I'm, I'm on one side and holding the door, and he's on the other saying... Who's in there? <laughs> and I said, um, Pastor Steve from the Presbyterian Church. He said, what are you doing in there? And I, I said, I haven't got any trousers. <laughs> and he said, why haven't you got any trousers? <laughs> and I said, your wife's got them. <laughs> Just went from bad to worse. And I'm holding the door shut and I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Anyway, she quickly came to the rescue and explained, you know, what was going on. We got it all solved and somehow or other I had to go back and teach RE. But my mind was going, why does this have to happen to me? I really felt, you know, very, very awkward about the whole thing. Sometimes actions have unintended consequences, and, it, and sometimes you can foresee what those consequences might be or kind of what they might be. Other times you have no idea what might unfold. And that's the case in the passage before us today. There's some unintended consequences for Paul from preaching the gospel. He preaches the word. He does not intend to stir up opposition and difficulty and problem but that's exactly what he gets. 
it was an unintended consequence. But knowing the beliefs of those who were listening, it was basically unavoidable. So unlike my series of unfortunate events, Paul's circumstances were life-threatening. Just, just look at chapter 21, verse 31. He says things like this. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops. Verse 36, the crowd that followed kept shouting out, get rid of him. You go over into chapter 22 and he's trying to give his testimony, which he does. And as soon as he says, go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles, the crowd listening to Paul until he said this, then they raised their voices and said, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Then you go over into chapter 23 and you read these remarkable words, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So the stakes are pretty high here. This is violent opposition. This is implacable, intractable opposition to the gospel, saying, we do not like what we're hearing. We so much do not like what we're hearing that we're going to take it out on you. So it was the situation that Paul tried to explain his actions for the sake of the gospel. That's the circumstance in which he's trying to explain it. And the point is that, that you have to be ready to stand up for the gospel. He was fully prepared to stand up for the gospel. He'd been warned when he was first converted and that he heard that, that voice and, and saw the light on the road to Damascus and he, he heard these words, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How much he must suffer for my name. And Jesus had said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Clearly, Paul was ready, willing and able to defend the gospel. It was his life's mission to do that. And he was prepared to do it. He could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. He knew the message was to the Jews first, but it was also for the Gentiles. But when the Jews heard him say that God had told him to go, I will take you far away to the Gentiles and they will listen, they rose up and said, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. There was some prejudice. There were some real barriers. And the gospel needed to bring down these barriers. And into that situation, Paul speaks the word of the Lord and tries to make known the good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation. That he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah. He was born, he lived among us that perfect life and then suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and to the, to the cries of crucify him, crucify him, release Barabbas, he was crucified, died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. 
And this is the gospel that he declared as of first importance. This was the message that he'd been called to make known. The very message he'd decried and resisted and said wasn't true became the very cornerstone and centre and soul of his life. And he was willing to give his life for Christ. So he's clearly willing to stand up for the gospel. He's clearly not ashamed of the gospel. And in this situation, as he shares the personal account of how he came to faith, he's, he's giving an example of how we can stand up and defend the gospel too. We have to know how to present and defend that gospel, but rely upon God's help to do it. Spirit-led witness has a compulsion about it that cannot be duplicated. When the Holy Spirit is at work in what someone is declaring, you, there's, there's a vibrancy, an urgency, some kind of a... Uh, there's something about it that, that gets under your skin for good or for bad. For good, as in warming your heart and drawing you to faith or for bad in pricking your conscience and you're resisting, saying, I don't like this, I want to shoot the messenger. This is is not going where I want it to go. But when you share that message and couch it in the context of your personal story of how you came to faith, it's how can someone resist that in the sense of denying it? It's very difficult to do because it's your story. You know better than anyone. It happened to you. So it's incumbent upon each of us to know how to present and defend the gospel and to rely upon God for help in doing that. We're told that's what the story of the book of Acts is basically centred around. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Paul gets caught up in this. He gives the account of how he comes to faith and he's willing to stand up in front of his fellow countrymen and proclaim a very unwelcome message because he knows that that message is the truth. And he knows that that gospel message is what saves sinners. And it saved him the chief of sinners. And the unction of the Spirit of God was upon him such that he could not help but speak of what he saw and heard. He testified about that good news. So the Spirit of God does does not make us timid but gives us power, love and self-discipline. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. One of the best ways to do that is to share your testimony. I wonder if we understand the gospel well enough and how we came to faith well enough to be able to explain that pretty concisely to someone if they asked us, how did you become a Christian? Could we share our testimony of what Jesus means to us? 
why you, how you came to that place of understanding his death on the cross. Because being able to do that is a, an awesome tool in your armory of defending the gospel. Being able to stand up and proclaim the message of Jesus. Remember, it's the story about how you came to know Jesus. The story's still about Jesus. It's not really about you. It's about Christ and what he has done, but it's how you came to discern that and understand that, how you were brought to faith in Jesus, repentance for your sin and faith in the Lord's sufficient death for you. So notice that Paul spoke Aramaic. He wanted to get his message across in a way that communicated. And if he'd spoken in Greek, many of the people would have understood but not all probably. And remember, it's a Jewish audience and he's in Jerusalem. So he speaks Aramaic or possibly Hebrew. And the idea is that that everyone is going to be clear. Everyone's going to be able to understand. They won't be hearing it in their non-native language. They won't be hearing it in their second language. They'll hear it in their heart language, their primary language. So for the sake of the gospel, he adapts to his audience and communicates in a way that they can easily grasp and understand. But remember, whenever we do this, whenever we do the level best we can to communicate the gospel as clearly and as concisely and as down-to-earth way as we possibly can, we cannot fully overcome the stumbling block of the gospel. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But to those of us who believe Christ, the wisdom and the power of God. And he speaks out of the fullness of a heart deeply touched by the wisdom and power of God. And he shares his story. He does it in a language that they can easily comprehend. But he gets to a certain point in the message and they say, ah, We don't want to know about it. He's not fit to live. So know that presenting and defending the gospel may provoke fury instead of faith. It does not always provoke faith. Sometimes it provokes deep-seated animosity, opposition, even to the point of threatening Paul to be torn apart. That's pretty serious opposition. But Paul has already said, as Carl preached last week, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I came across this comment that I've been dwelling on. It says, To pick up a cross means walking against the grain of cultural values so that our own expectations and needs take a back seat to God's will. To pick up a cross means walking against the grain of cultural values so that our own expectations and needs take a back seat to God's call. 
Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch on his way back to Jerusalem, strengthening the disciples and, and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. We've got to go through hardships and difficulties. It's, it's unavoidable. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of the Lord, he writes to Timothy. Now these days, the circumstances in which we minister are that employers often mistakenly treat religious speech like sexual harassment and they create a zero-tolerance policy for religion that's similar to policies for, for, for sexual harassment. So just think about things like this. Religious speech enjoys both constitutional um, and statutory protection before the law, but people don't want to know about it, and they see it as you know, divisive. You don't talk about death, you don't talk about taxes, and you don't talk about politics, and you don't talk about religion, because that might upset sens sensibilities. But more and more Christians are being told that religion has no place in the public sphere, no place in the workplace. Some employees have even been terminated for exercising their right to religious expression. Now, here's just a few examples now, this is the stuff that we're beginning to encounter. Paul encountered his opposition in a rather direct, physical way. We encounter it like this. A university department supervisor faced disciplinary action for violating the university's harassment policy. Human resources personnel informed him that because he was a supervisor, he could never talk about religion to another employee. And that interpretation of the law is, in fact, wrong. Within certain uh, respectful boundaries, you are able to do that. You are able to share your faith, particularly if someone asks you a question. Another example, an employee of a large retail establishment frequently shared her faith with co-workers. Because this employee knew that laws regarding religious speech meant that she had to be very careful. She always made a point to ask her co-workers to tell her if they did not want her to discuss religion. None of her colleagues ever complained to her, yet she was terminated for violating the store's harassment policy. Another example, a man's employer wanted him to cease all voluntary religious discussions with co-workers. Yet employees who consistently violated the company's profanity policy were never disciplined. But he was picked on and told to keep his mouth shut. There is no virtue in being ignorant of the law, nor in being disrespectful of the law. We need to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves, as Jesus said. But recognise that our best efforts, when we've been as wise and as gentle as we can be, it will not necessarily overcome all the barriers. Notice that, that Paul exploited an opportunity of difference between Pharisee and Sadducee for the sake of bringing the, the, the message back to the centrality of the resurrection. 
He says, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. There's an easy way to remember who believes what. Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So the Pharisees do. The Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in angels and spirits, etc. But the Pharisees do. So immediately, seeing this situation, he, he exploits that for the sake of trying to at least get the conversation back to about the hope of the resurrection, Now, you could dispute the strategy and the wisdom of how he went about doing that, but the fact is he was able to get away from straining at gnats and swallowing camels and talking about finer points of the law and all kinds of irrelevant things and at least get the conversation back to where it was all about that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day. And this is at the core of the message that was proclaimed as of first importance. If Christ be not raised from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied, we're still in our sins. Christ died and rose again, and that's at the heart of the gospel. So defending the gospel these days often has a moral point of entry for us. Likely a conversation will revolve around some issue of integrity or sexual morality, or abortion, or euthanasia, or gay marriage. It's important to seize whatever initiative we can to lead people beyond external behaviours to understand that God is grieved by the corruption of sin in our hearts. And he has done something about that state of corrupt sinfulness in our hearts by sending his sinless son to be the perfect substitute for sinners and to receive Christ we have to repent of our sin because God is justly angry with our sin and if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness for the sake of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us and is the substitute for our sins. So Paul's strategy gives us an inkling as to how we can go about doing things. We need to spend some time thinking about how we can use some of these current debates for the sake of getting back to the gospel. How can we, how can we use these things as an opportunity to share about the good news of Jesus and get over some of the hump of issues that circulate more around particular behaviours. You say that it's wrong, I say it's right. Who's right, who's wrong, who are you to judge? And get it back to God, the judge of all the earth, who does a right. The God who, who made man male and female in his image. The God who said, be holy as I am holy. The God who said, trust me, come to me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek 
and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So it's important to seize whatever initiative we can to lead people beyond external behaviours to understand that God is grieved by the corruption of sin in our hearts and the message of the atonement. And finally, know that God will reward your efforts to present and defend the gospel. It might be difficult, but God is faithful. Take courage, Paul was told. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Take courage, Paul. People mightn't be receiving your message here, but I've got others, and there can be open doors of opportunity to hear the gospel, and I'll, I'll take you to those places, and you'll proclaim my name. And you, you see this unfolding in the book of Acts. By the time we get to the end of the book, he's in Jerusalem, he's under so-called house arrest, but he's freely proclaiming the kingdom of God to anyone who cares to hear and who comes to his house. So he's kept at government expense as a preacher of the gospel in Rome. So God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. We must not allow ourselves to be daunted by the task. Taking on board reminders of God's presence and enabling and instances of his promise-keeping faithfulness are essential if we're to have a joyful testimony and, and have the boldness of witness that God wants us to have. He who promised is faithful and will do it. He who's begun a good work will complete it. So whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. The one who is victorious, I will dress in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before the Father and his angels, says the angel of the Lord to one of the churches in the book of Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. The good news of the gospel must keep sizzling in our own hearts as good news if it's to win through. Lay hold of the promises. Feast upon God's goodness. Matthew Henry famously said, he is a Christian indeed and she is a Christian indeed who is neither ashamed of the gospel nor ashamed to the gospel. He is a Christian indeed who is neither ashamed of the gospel, not embarrassed and apologetic about it, nor ashamed to it by being a hypocrite. I just want to close by reading to you what I find inspiring words from Sydney Archbishop Glenn Davies. And he described this issue well, I think, in his first presidential address to the 49th Synod of the Anglican Diocese in Sydney in October 2013, just a couple of months after he was inducted into that place. I didn't hear him speak, but I've come across this. And he says, My vision for the next five years is to see the name of Jesus exalted in the city of Greater Sydney and beyond, and to see his body, which is the church, gaining greater honour and respect among the communities in which we live. For this to happen, we must be a people who are energised and transformed by the gospel, such that our lives reflect not merely the rhetoric, but the reality 
of the love of Christ. Let our love for one another and our love for God, grounded in Christ's love for us, be the magnet that draws unbelievers to the Saviour so that they too may be enfolded into the fellowship of the church, which is his body and his temple. We love him because he first loved us. It is his love that we proclaim and his name that we seek to exalt as we commit ourselves afresh to glorify God with every fibre of our being. I wish there were more bishops who spoke like this. Our Saviour left a final command to his apostles to make disciples of all nations. The great commission so aptly named has has not been superseded. It has not run its course. It has not lost its energy or its urgency. It it has not lost its energy or urgency. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus and it is by his authority that we make disciples through baptism into the triune name and teach them to observe all that he has commanded. Our mission is twofold. Evangelism, the making of disciples, and teaching, the maturing of disciples. While our context is different from the first century context of the apostles, the mission is the same and will be the same until the Lord returns. And then he says this, we shall need great courage to stand against the tenor of our society as it slips further and further away from the tenets of scriptural authority and biblical morality whether it be same-sex marriage, abortion or euthanasia. We should also pray for those who govern us, as the Apostle Paul directs, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and respectful in every way. So let me ask us all, I include myself in this, when I point at you, there's three fingers back at me. Are we prepared to stand up personally for the sake of the gospel? Are we ready to take risks in our personal conversations to share our testimony, to make known who Jesus is and what he means to us? How will they hear unless someone speaks the message? Do we know how to present the good news of Jesus? Do we know what the good news is? Can you succinctly present that? If someone was to ask you, how can I become a Christian would you be able to answer them? If not, let me encourage you to be prepared for that time, for that eventuality. I heard of a fellow who just, he'd been cultivating a relationship with someone for a number of years and he was, he was on a boat, that he'd caught, you know, gone from his boat in a little dinghy to his mate's boat and they'd had a beautiful meal and had a wine and he was just climbing back down over the rope ladder to get in his boat and the guy leans over the top and says, and by the way, what, 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 how do you, you become a Christian? What, what's the difference? What, what makes the difference? And he's, what, what do I do? Do I, do I go back up? Do I go back down? It's getting late. So, and it came to him, he just, he said, there's two words I want to speak to you, do and done. Religion is you do it, you, you try and be good enough, you work, you do, you accomplish, 
in the hope that God might reward you. Christianity is Christ has done it. He died on the cross. He lived the perfect life. It is finished when he died on the cross. Done. D-O-N-E. And he was able to give a succinct presentation of the gospel just like that. Now he had to be prepared for that. Are we prepared to share our faith? Will we look past the painfulness of opposition to the promise of God's reward? Promise of God's reward. He who is ashamed of me and of my gospel, will I be ashamed before my Father who is in heaven? I would hate to hear those words. Our final song today is going to centre around a prayer of faith for God's glorious name to be known and proclaimed. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honours of thy name. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are a God who is willing to own us that you've called us by name, that there is nothing half-hearted or compromised about your calling of us. You've called us with a holy calling. You've called us out of darkness into your marvellous light. That you've called us into a relationship of life and hope and peace, out of death and darkness and despair that you've called us into eternal life, that we might not perish, but live evermore with you. We thank you that you are so clear about this and you want the gospel message to be proclaimed so clearly and us to take our stand on that message. Help us to be a church, Lord, where the gospel message keeps on sizzling in our hearts where we love the Saviour who first loved us, where we're constantly refilled and refueled by your Spirit and encouraged to open our mouth and share the good news because we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Will you please help us, Lord, in this venture for the four o'clock service, for the sake of the gospel, that more might hear and more might know and understand the good news of your love. We ask it for your glory in Jesus our Lord. Amen.